we saw that this contrast of Psalm 1 is true all throughout Scripture. We read all throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation about the blessed and the cursed, the saved and the unsaved, the wise and the foolish, good prophets and teachers, bad prophets and teachers, the narrow way through which Jesus is the gate, the broad way where you find lots of company. And today we are going to see a continuance of that contrast with the nations of the world rebelling against the true king and the true kingdom of the world. We also saw last week in our discussion of the Psalms that the central purpose of the book of Psalms is to bring praise to God, but also to encourage believers. It's revealed to us through all different sorts of Psalms. And while the author of the Psalms ultimately is the Lord through the Holy Spirit, humanly speaking, there's seven or eight composers of the Psalms, and there's a few Psalms that is unknown who the composers were. We discussed that Psalm 1 and 2 is not presented first because they were written first. In fact, Psalm 90 is the psalm first written by Moses over 1,400 years ago, and Psalm 126 written by Ezra around 440 before Christ was the last psalm composed. And so between the first written psalm and the last written psalm, there's about 1,000 years over which the 150 psalms were composed and compiled together into what we have today. So Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were specifically chosen to be presented first. And they can be seen as two gatekeepers, if you will, or two pillars as we enter into this house of praise to our God. The purpose of Psalms is to praise our God and encourage believers. And so Psalm 1 and 2 are the gatekeepers as we enter into praising God and encouraging each other. What we will see and what we have seen last week is that Psalm 1 points to Christ. We'll see today that Psalm 2 points to the victorious Christ. And so these two gatekeepers, these two pillars, have Christ right in the middle. So as we walk into the Psalms, the purpose of these two Psalms is to put Christ in the center. So before we start, please pray with me. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise and glorify your name as our Creator and Messiah this morning. Lord, we pray that the life-giving truth recorded for us in Psalm 2 will be opened to us now through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you give us ears to hear and open and receiving hearts. Lord, I pray that you will move among us this morning to renew us, and to encourage us. We thank you for this, Father. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Amen. So, please open your Bibles to Psalm 2. 
Hopefully you still have a bookmarker there from last week. I have. So like Psalm 1, the theme of Psalm 2 is that of contrast. And like I said, this contrast is to remind us that there's really only two types of people in the world. And Psalm 2 continues this contrast, reminding us that there's a rebellious world and there's a victorious kingdom. So please read with me. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the degree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in the Lord. So far from Psalm 2. So there's a few obvious observations we can make from just reading Psalm 2. The first is that it's twice as long as Psalm 1. <laughs> 12 verses versus 6 verses. It's another wisdom meditation similar to Psalm 1. It's got the same contrast. But one extra component to notice is that in this contrast, there's also a celebratory component. The psalm, specifically from verse 4 onwards, celebrates the unquestionable supremacy of God and His Messiah over the rebellious forces of the world. Then a little bit deeper around the structure of the psalm, there's a few things I want to bring to your attention. Depending on what translation you're reading from, you might have noticed that there's a bit of white space between verse 3 and 4, verse 6 and 7, verse 9, sorry, verse 8 and 9. So it kind of divides the, the psalm up into four sections. Some translations have it most that I looked at has that breakup. And this is because in the Hebrew... This is written as poetry, and this is how it was written, in four sections. And those four sections has very specific purpose. So they call that um, ABBA concentric literary structure. So section 1, 2, 3, 4 
has A, B, B, A. So section one and four relate to each other, and, and section two and three is the centre of, of the poem, and had, that um, contains the nucleus, the, the, the most important bit of the song. So through the structure, the poet, um, which we read, uh, in Acts is confirmed as David, most likely David, is pointing our attention to something here. And in the same way that Psalm 1 puts the blessed man in the forefront, that is like a tree, firm tree, bearing fruit and being blessed, and the wicked man, the cursed man in the background, it's secondary on the way to destruction. In the same way, he continues in Psalm 2 with putting the Lord, the one enthroned, in the center of the psalm and the rebelling nations at the outer circle. So you'll notice that section 1 and section 4 of the psalm talks about the nations of the world. And section 2 and section 3 is all about God, the enthroned one, and his Messiah. So this might seem a subtle point, but I think it's my opinion that it's critically important. And a lot of scholars agree with that. Because when we tend to focus our attention on the rebellious nations of the world, the kings of the world, the authorities, and if we, we tend to focus on their rebellion against God, it has the tendency to fill us with anger and worry and anxiety. And we saw last week that what your heart is full of points you in a certain direction. Do you remember the progress of walking and then standing and then sitting? That's talked about in Psalm 1. So here... It takes that concept and say, what your heart is filled of, that's where your heart's pointing to. If you are worried, if you are anxious, that's the, what, the direction you're walking. That's where you'll stand and that's where you'll sit down. Ultimately, that's where you belong. And so when we are anxious, when we're angry, rightfully angry, the world is wicked. What it does is it fills our heart with that emotion. And instead of having a heart that loves God and loves God's people, it spills over into the ones around us that we love. And they end up worrying, being angry, fighting. So understanding the structure of Psalm 2, even before we go through the words, is already speaking volumes to us. It's saying the thing that deserves all of our emotional energy, all of our mental capacity, is the one enthroned in heaven. Of lesser importance is the raging nations of the world. This is what this concentric structure is teaching us, is telling us. So I mention this to help us to realize that the goodness of God 
the love of God for his people is far more powerful than any rebellious evil or wickedness that is in the world. And we will see this as we work through the four sections of Psalm 2. The one worth all of your emotional energy is the one enthroned in heaven. Remember the blessed man of Psalm 1? He's been given a heart that loves God and loves God's people. Not a heart that fears, that is angry, that is anxious or fights. This is something for us to really think about. Where is our hearts at? Remember the question from last week? It's not where is your body at, but where is your mind and your heart at this morning? Are you really here? Have you come to hear what the Lord is saying? Paul says in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is near. Do not be worried about anything, but in every prayer and petition, let your requests be known to God with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Not worry. Not anger. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will protect you. Like we saw in Psalm 1, and we'll see today, the Lord protects the way of the blessed man, of the righteous man. He looks after you. And that means your, your mind and your heart as well. So I'm going to continue to just stress the significance of Psalm 2. This psalm is a scorcher. It's a perler. She's a butte. I don't know what else is there I can say. <laughs> I was thinking about Australian slang. Um, the psalm is quoted seven times in the New Testament. And it's referred to indirectly another two times. Each one of the seven quotes from these 12 verses directly relate to Jesus. There's no question. And this is from a psalm that was written hundreds of year, years before the New Testament and the disciples, but over 3,000 years from where we are today. And it feels like it's written for us. It's so relevant. Peter quotes verse 1 and 2 in Acts 4 from verse 24 to 28. Paul, while in Antioch, quotes verse 7 in Acts 13, verse 33. Then again in Hebrews 1 verse 5, again Hebrews 1, uh, sorry, 5 verse 5, Revelation 2.27, Revelation 12.5, and Revelation 19.15. So on that note, please look at me as we look at this first section, the first three verses of Psalm 1. So in this first section, we see... A description being given to us about the rebellious nations. In other words, the rebellion of mankind. Verse 1. Why do the nations conspire or rage or carry on? Why do the nations carry on and the people plot in vain? Meaning, making plans without benefit. 
The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So the psalmist here is genuinely puzzled, mystified. Why do the nations rage against God? They have no reason. There's no benefit in raging against God. Why? The rulers of the earth have been banding together against God since the time of Babel. Do you recall them coming together and building the tower? And it's not stopped since then. And we know that it was pointless back then. And nothing's changed. It's still pointless. The same thing that we have seen the curtain drawn back and we know what happened at Babel. The same is still happening today. Nothing has changed. The Lord is supreme. The nations band together and take counsel from each other. But it's the definition of insanity. Insanity, like we like to say, is doing the same thing but expecting a different outcome. So by that definition, we can say the nations are insane. Why do they keep on doing the same thing for no benefit? The outcome has never changed, is not changing, will never change. Past, present, future. And notice in verse 2 that these kings of the earth oppose the Lord. So the Hebrew Yahweh but also his anointed, Yeshua. So they, they oppose not only God the Father, but also Jesus, very specifically the Messiah. And the anointed, of course, being Jesus, as we've read from Matthew 7, 17, as God spoke to Jesus at the transfiguration. And why? Why do these nations band together? Well, verse 3 says, because they believe the lie that God has brought bondage to this world. Because they say, let us break their chains, in other words, God's chains, and throw off God's shackles. So Satan has been so effective in mankind believing his lie from Genesis 3, that they believe God is the one that brought bondage into the world. We know that we are under bondage. But the truth is, sin brought bondage into the world. Mankind brought these chains and shackles. But now we want to give the, um, the reason for this bondage to God. We want to point the finger at him and say, no, it's your fault. Jesus says in Matthew 9, it is not the healthy that need a doctor. I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Jesus is the bondage breaker. But yet here, the rebelling nations of the world accuse God of the very thing that he's come to do. 
So as we move into the second section, verse 4 to 6, we see a description of God's response to this rebellion from the nations of the world. Look with me, verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So what's God's response? He laughs and he scoffs. To scoff means to show somebody that what they're saying or what they're doing, you, you don't respect. So God laughs and he scoffs, not because he's surprised or because he's confused or afraid or because he's not ready for this confrontation. He's not hiding behind a vast army. We hear nothing about God's army of angels here. He's not counting the enemy to tactically determine what he needs to do to win this battle. We see none of that. What we read in verse um, 4, no, the one enthroned in heaven loves, the one enthroned in heaven. He's not worried because he's the highest in heaven. He sits on a glorious throne in heaven. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There is none like him. There's none above him. He has all the authority over creation. God does not even rise from his throne. He sits ruling, laughing at the foolishness of the nations of the earth because they disregard his truth. Verse 5 shows us that God does speak. He has every right to immediately act and destroy mankind. What did God say to Adam and Eve? If you eat of this fruit, surely you will die. They ate of the fruit, what happened? God had the right to destroy them, but what did he do? He had mercy. He gave them covering. He gave them clothes to cover their shame. So we see the same act here. God is speaking and warning the nations, saying, stop your foolishness. But the Lord's also saying, you will be held responsible. Don't mistake my mercy and my, my patience for not keeping you responsible. Through the centuries, many have opposed God and Jesus. Each one of these components have been, is, and will be crushed. Past, present, and future. A famous example of an opponent, a real open opponent to Christianity, was the Roman Emperor Diocletian. He ruled about 300 years after Christ. And he had such a determined hatred, a rebellion against Christians, that he persecuted the church mercilessly. And he ordered the making of a medal with the inscription, the name of Christianity being extinguished. He ordered two 
monuments to be built on the frontiers of his empire with two inscriptions on. One, having extended well, his whole credentials, which was five lines long, having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the Republic to ruin. Second inscription, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ and for having extended the worship of gods. He's the very manifestation of this rebellion of the rulers of the world. But where is he today? He's dead. He's in the pages of history, mostly scorned for what he's done. But what has happened to the kingdom of Jesus? The name of Jesus has continued to be spread across the world. And in the last 2,000 years, God's kingdom has continued to grow. The Lord has been, is, and will be holding all of these opponents in contempt. And the Lord will show them their foolishness. In verse 6, God says, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So not only is, is God warning the nations, but he's also telling them how their destruction is going to come. How God has defeated the nations by installing his king. So all of defiant mankind, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the presidents, the prime ministers, they all need to know that there's one king that is greater than all. One king that has been given all the authority in heaven and on earth. One king that received his authority from the same source where they get their earthly authority. We know that all authority on earth is given by God. But he's installed one king above all. And God has established that place. It's set. It's already done. It's happened. So we move from section 2 to section 3 of the psalm. We're now in verse 7. And this section, 7 to 9, describes the substance of the Lord's response. We just saw the Lord's response. And so here we see the curtain drawn open again. And we see a recording of a divine conversation between Jesus and God the Father. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, this is Jesus speaking. You are my son, today I have become your father. So Jesus recalls for us what he heard God the Father say to him. And that's why we read the bit from the Transfiguration where God spoke and said, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. God says to Jesus, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash, dash them to pieces like pottery. So the Lord's anointed is speaking here. It's Jesus. 
Today you are my son. Today I have become your father. So Jesus recalls this conversation. And that points to the resurrection. <coughs> become, or some of the translations will have begotten, is also a very important concept to grasp. It does not mean to be created or born like we are born. Rather, we read in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the creator of all things. He is uncreated. He's begotten. Begotten describes a relationship of two beings of the same essence. A maybe flawed way to try and explain it is that a man creates a statue or a painting or a, uh, or a piece of music that's created. But a man begets a child. So of the same essence. So like I said, this also points to the resurrection and the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17 that we uh, read. And so in verse 8, I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Confirms that all the nations of the earth belongs to Jesus. The one that created them all has given them. None. There's no exclusions. He will rule over all nations and all judgment is committed to him. John 5 verse 22 says that God the Father will not judge because he's given that to Jesus. So the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus, is the one that has the authority to judge. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Jesus has such power and authority that he can dash the nations of the world, the empires that we rate so highly, he can dash them in pieces like you would dash a pottery clay when you hit it with an iron scepter. Or an iron rod. Revelation 11 describes an exciting consummation of this inheritance that Jesus has. I'll read verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. We think when we read it in Revelation, it's something that's in the future. This has already happened. Christ is enthroned. He's seated. He's ruling. His kingdom has been ushered in. So do you see the significance of the center of the psalm? It's pulling us back from wherever our mind is, pulling us back to the center to say, this is what's important. The one enthroned in heaven is what is important. Whatever fear you have here on earth is secondary. Whatever empire is rising, be it the Roman Empire of Diocletian or whatever, it's secondary to what should be where our hearts are pointing at. So we arrive at this last section, section four, 
in verse 10 to 12, we see a description of the psalmist giving advice back to the nations. So after now reviewing this truth and being pulled back in and refocusing on what we have to focus on, the psalmist gives advice. And he says basically to the nations, settle down. Stop carrying on. Settle down. Submit to God. Serve Him. Very specifically, serve the Messiah. Otherwise, destruction is coming. Do not be fooled. Verse 10, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule. Or He will be, uh, sorry, celebrate His rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the psalmist now counsels the kings of the earth. And of course, when this was written by King David, he was immediately referring to the kingdoms that was raging against Israel. So this has a near application, but also a far or a future application. As I said, it's been true since the kingdoms that raged against God at the time of Babel. That was before David. It's still true today. So this advice that the psalmist is given is for us. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So David... or is calling the, the, the kings of the earth to surrender to God, to acknowledge God, to give him proper reverence. And in this submitted, humble position, they can rejoice in trembling. Kiss the sun. Just those three words. To understand that correctly in the context was for a a subject to come to the king, they would come and bow before the king and, and, and kiss his hand or him on the cheek. And it's a sign of affectionate submission. So this is what is meant here. Kiss the son is to have affectionate submission to Jesus, God's Messiah. So it, it shows you two things. To just submit to Christ is one part of it, but there also needs to be affection. That personal relationship, that heart of flesh that loves God and loves God's people. And so he's counseling the nations of the earth is submit to God, have affection for his love. And you will rejoice. Otherwise, destruction is coming. So if the kings of the earth and the nations are commanded to do this, then this is expected of us as well. Psalm 1 talks about the individual. Psalm 2 talks about more in a corporate or a, a group or a nation level. We are not only called to submit to God personally, but also corporately. 
We're not called to just worship him individually, but also corporately. Pray individually, but also corporately. All of it applies from a personal level to the corporate level. Can you see how Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is just capturing all of the essentials and putting Christ in the center and reminding us to get rid of everything else we think is important because here's the essence of it. Humbly come to the Lord's anointed. Humbly come to Jesus. The Bible says everyone that calls on his name will be saved. Everyone that calls on his name will not be shown away. The Bible says when you harden your heart, when you become one of these nations that rebel against God, and remember your rebellion doesn't have to be open. We can rebel against God by being overly righteous, by being focused on our fear of what's happening in the world, by worrying If there's one thing that God said most of all throughout the Bible is do not fear, do not worry. How many times do we read that? So why? Why is Psalm 1 and 2 chosen to be put first? And why is this very, very basic information distilled back to its core for us? The answer is in the closing words of verse 12. Because blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those that know that the only place to be saved from God is to be with God. Because he's the one to be feared. Destruction comes from him. Not from the rulers of the world. Not from Satan. Don't get me wrong. We have to be the salt and the light in the world. But our primary focus, our hearts need to be pointed to the one enthroned in heaven. Psalm 1 opens with blessed is the man. And Psalm 2 closes with blessed are those. Do you see how they form two bookmarks to these two pillars that we walk through? From God's blessing to God's blessing. From God's blessing to the individual, to you, to God's blessing to his people, to us, his church. Those who defy God have been broken. They are broken. They will continue to be broken. They have been crushed. They are being crushed. They will be crushed. They'll be put to shame. Yes, Diocletian had 15 or 20 years of reign. It's a speck in the timeline of God. Yes, he's brought a lot of Christians suffering. But God will hold him accountable. The vengeance belongs to the Lord, the one enthroned in heaven. Our call this morning is to put our trust in God, God's anointed, the one enthroned in heaven. To be in him is to be blessed. 
It is to be blessed, but also in the future to continue to be blessed. And that blessing only comes from our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I trust that from Psalm 1 and 2, we can all be pointed back to the center of what's important for this year that's ahead. It's been so helpful in the first two weeks to be reminded of these two solid truths and of God's victory and supremacy in our world. Amen. Let's pray. Our almighty God and heavenly Father, Lord, we praise and honor you for installing your Messiah, our King, our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, and that we can know that he is enthroned in heaven, ruling, sovereignly ruling. Lord, it is good to know that we have none to fear but you. But our fear of you is reverent fear, loving fear. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder. And I pray, Lord, that anyone here this morning who still has doubt or worry or fear, that you will renew their hearts, renew their minds, to fill us with a, a deep-seated contentment and a joy that is only found in you. Lord, we pray, may this year that's ahead for us as a church, but also for all the individuals here, that we would continue to walk on the path where you look before us, behind us, around us, and where you protect us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, musicians. <laughs>